Audi. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. I don't know about you, but I'm spending most days at the moment here in semi-lockdown London. Things have been eased a little bit, but I am spending most days searching incessantly, really, as to when we might be able to travel again. This is professionally and personally because I am called upon quite frequently to talk about the travel news and developments on the radio. I've been on an awful lot this week, actually, obviously, because a lot of people are asking the same questions. And the truth is, we don't. Actually, no, at the moment. But a few European countries are opening up to travel. I know they're talking about travel bubbles and tra- travel corridors between certain countries. Australia and New Zealand are planning them, and the UK and France might have an agreement about not having a 14-day quarantine, which might be imposed on and other people coming from different places. And of course, we want to travel. The people that love travel, lots of people actually are saying that they might sort of, you know, not even bother this year because they're they're worried, you know, rightly. So about potentially catching the virus, but I, I want to do it. If it's safe to do it, I don't want to put myself or anyone or loved ones or anyone else for that matter in danger. But if it's safe to do it, I I will be going to Spain. Hopefully, you know, it's my second home, and I'll see if I can get there. I will go there. But here in London, you know, we've been very lucky. We've been able to go out and exercise, which has been amazing. But I haven't left the borough of Greenwich for over eight weeks now, eight or nine weeks. The last time I went into London was to record Victoria Hislop, and yeah, that's eight or nine weeks ago. And it's getting a little bit claustrophobic. And I'm finding being at home. I've got two very young children, five and seven. Being at home, it's quite difficult to get motivated to work. A lot of my my work is on hold at the moment because I can't get out to do it, so that's not great financially. But I'm finding it really hard to get motivated. But when When I actually do something, like the couple of days ago, I made this recording for this episode、um, a couple of days ago, and it was just incredible to speak to someone and to get that buzz about talking about travel. And it was just such an uplifting conversation with today's guest that it really made me feel so much better. In fact, you know. I don't know what's getting you through, but definitely conversations with my friends、um, are really helping me keep sane right now. And you know, what better way to get to know someone than to see how travel has shaped their life, and indeed,、uh, in many ways, actually, with today's guest, really made them who they are. So, on to today's guest. 
The wonderful travel writing of Cash Bettecheria, aka the Budget Traveller, has won him National Geographic Travel Writer of the Year and resulted in his book, The Grand Hostels, Luxury Hostels of the World. On this episode, Cash and I talk about life in Berlin, the culture shock of moving from Kent to Calcutta, age nine, being at school with 18,000 other pupils, Dutch houses in Scotland, hanging out with Rastas in South Africa, and a rather surreal encounter with Tommy Lee Jones in an ancient Japanese samurai kingdom. From me here in semi-lockdown London and Cash in an easing lockdown in Berlin, it's the Big Travel Podcast. So where are you at the moment? Where are you in lockdown? I'm in Berlin at the moment. You're in Berlin? I didn't know you were in Berlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I met a German lady three years ago from Berlin. We, We met after ITB, the travel trade show, and... I yeah I'd left Britain I brexited 11 years ago. <laughs> I, You're I, ahead of the curve. I took off and decided to take a chance on on this blog and uh this uh try and be this do this nomadic thing for a while so yeah. So tell us tell us who you are. Tell us about the blog and the nomadic thing. So um my name is Cash Bhattacharya. Some people know me as the budget traveler. It's a blog about how to travel in style on a budget. I've been doing it now for 11 years. I was working full-time, hand, holding down three jobs, working in a bookshop, working in a bar, working for a magazine, while starting the blog back in 2009 in Edinburgh. And um, I uh, decided that I wanted to make this blog my full-time thing I didn't make any money from it for the first four or five years, but I realized to make it work, I had to I had to kind of hit the road and uh, uh, let go of, uh, get out of my comfort zone. And uh, I quit my job. Uh, I used to teach social media uh, uh, to charities, to elderly people in the Midlothian area outside Edinburgh. And uh, I, I let go of my job. I, I put my notice in and I hit the road in 2012. And I haven't looked back since, you could say. You have the accent of a traveller. So before Edinburgh, where were you? Where are you actually from? Or can, can you say where you're from? Or are you from so many places? Yeah, I'm exactly. You've hit it. You hit the nail there. I'm one of those travellers who travels not only to travel, but it's kind of therapy for, <laughs> for understanding who I am. I, I was born in England. I grew up in England till the age of nine. My father was a doctor. Indian family and uh, my parents took me away from my comfortable existence in England uh, with my sister to Calcutta where uh, we spent most of our childhood to the age of 18 and uh, I, I couldn't hack it. Uh, it was too much. Um, as much as I love India, it's also something that it's, it was very difficult for me to adjust to a different culture. And uh, I went back to Scotland for university in, in, in Dundee when I was 18. And I lived in Scotland for 11 years. That must have been a shock moving to India. That's the exact re- reverse of what so many people do. How did you, how old were you when, you when you moved and what was Calcutta like at that time? I was nine years old and I, um, I remember, you know, sometimes travel when you're a kid can be like a game. And you start the game and you're very excited and it's all new, it's different and it's exciting. We're on a plane, we're going to India, we meet friends and family. And then 
after a few months, the reality of the situation kind of hits you because you realize that you're not going back to England. You're not going to see your friends probably again. Yeah, it was a bit of a brutal shock because I had to enroll in school. It's called South Point. It's the biggest I think it used to be in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most number of pupils in the world, 18,000. Oh, my so, goodness, 18,000 people in your school. Yeah, it's just cr- incredible. So you, you're like, in, in, in my class, there was 100 students crammed, no. in, crammed into like a, like into a sardine tin. It was a huge shock for me because I had to learn the language Bengali, which is a language spoken in Calcutta. So I had to learn the language in six months in order to get into school. And uh, I was always the, the, the English kid from abroad, you know, I always st- stood out and I got bullied a lot uh, and it was, it was tough for me. I, I, I really uh, struggled uh, those first few years. Gosh, I can really imagine. So you moved from, where were you in England before that? So I, I grew up in Kent, uh, uh, Chatham, Garden of England, Kent. I know Chatham really well. It's uh, not far from me here in Greenwich, but I can't can only imagine what it's like to go from leafy Kent and Chatham. Sometimes is you know has an edge to it as well, even though it's a beautiful yeah. town. It definitely still has an edge. Um, but to go from leafy Kent, like you said, the Garden of England, to a school with eighteen thousand people in uh, Col- Calcutta. I was going to say Kolkata. What what are we calling it these days? Uh, it's, it depends. Kolkata, Kolkata. I prefer the old old pronunciation, Kolkata. That's for me. I'm, I'm old school in that sense. So, yeah, I prefer Calcutta. So what was a typical day like then? What was, you know, I find India hard. I mean, I love India. It's just an assault on the senses in so many ways. But it's actually quite hard work as well. And every time I've been, I've actually been, even though I've enjoyed the experience, I've actually been quite ga- glad to get home where everything works, you know, um, silly as that sounds. But what was the, what was the most Indian experience uh, that happened to you in that time? What was your sort of standout memory that that sort of culture shock that you must have experienced? I think, yeah, it, nothing prepares you for India. It's a real, as you said, assault in the senses and uh, the noise, the sound, the chaos, the humanity swarming around you, walking the streets, uh, the, the colours, the, the food. Those are things that you kind of take for granted when you live every day in Calcutta and you become insensitized to it. And then you, you, when you live here and I go back, it suddenly... I really appreciate the noise and the chaos. And it's something I actually miss. And I love how everything seems to function despite all the chaos. And uh, yeah, growing up in Calcutta was fascinating because it used to be the capital, as you know, of of British India till 1911. And it has an incredible wealth of beautiful uh, architecture that the British left behind. One of them, my favorite is Victoria Memorial, this glowing white dome of marble. And it stands out in this green oasis surrounded by all this urban chaos and right beside the Ganges and um and yeah it's it's a fascinating place if you if you love cities with a rough edge with lots of history in every corner and people extremely friendly and super curious to meet people from abroad and um culture is everything in in Calcutta it's the cultural capital of 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 India and and obviously also the street food capital I believe it's got an amazing food culture I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid Uh, it only sometimes the beauty of growing older is that the more you grow older the more you realize of what you've experienced and I guess even now when I look back at my memories I can appreciate what I had and when I go back home I always um 
I'd love to go back, but as you said, I, I can only go back for a few weeks before I can't handle the, the chaos anymore. So we, um, just before we leave India behind, we, why did your parents go back? That's such a, a reverse move for so many people at that point. And I'm guessing you were quite middle class when you arrived, by the time you'd been in England and got back, however, yeah, however that sort of started off. We, we came from a very simple family. My mum was not a working mother. She was dedicated her life to looking after us. She was an intelligent lady. She could have easily held down her own job, but she chose to look after us. And my father was a doctor. And uh, we went from a pretty simple life in, in, in England to India. And it was a big struggle for my father and my mother. And uh, for us, it was really, really hard. We, we really missed our education. It was very difficult in India. The food, the language, the culture. They went back because they wanted us to learn the culture and the language. I didn't obviously understand at the time. And we dove and put all our heart and soul into becoming part of the culture. And as much as I did learn the language, uh, it was really difficult for me. I, I struggled a lot in school and uh, I get, went from being a very good student to not being a very good student. And uh, I, I uh, was, when I left at 18 to Scotland, I was, I had no future in India. I had to start afresh in, in, in Dundee. So um, I, I thought at the time that, my life had gone against me, but now I feel that prepared me for life, that tough upbringing, and uh, for that I'm grateful. A lot of um, the children of immigrants, and I am one, well, half of one, uh, because my dad is uh, of Indian origin, but he's an Indian Fijian, so even though he's 100% Indian blood, he was brought up in Fiji, you know, a product of the uh, indentured labour, third generation um, Indian in Fiji. And when he came here to the UK, he didn't impart any knowledge of, of any Indian language, of culture. He was like happy to ditch it all, you know, and just, and just carry on with what was going on here. So as a consequence, when I was growing up, and I'm thinking about, you know, as a nine-year-old moving to India, it would have been Fiji to me. I can only imagine almost like the horror, you know, you're an, you're an English person. I love my, you know, you love your music and your top of the pops and your, you know, your school and your magazines and your popular culture and everything. I, I can only imagine the culture shock that, that that would have been. So when you moved then to, to Dundee, how did that pan out? It was great. Uh, I went to a university called the University of Abate Dundee. Uh, it had a very good course in economics. And um, Dundee is a small university town of 150, 160,000. It has two universities, two uh, colleges. So it's a very young people's city. And uh, Dundee back then... Uh, in 98 used to get a bad name there's all kinds of horrible names that people scots give dundee but it, it's a beautiful city by the tay river it's famous for its jute jam and journalism three j's <laughs> and uh and desperate dan a lot of people will be familiar with desperate dan uh but it's also a city that's full of culture has a wonderful um, theater it has a fantastic independent cinema, probably one of my favorite independent cinemas in the world, the DCA. And it also now has, obviously, the Victor and Albert Museum. So ah, yes, of course it does. I've never been, actually. I've only been to Edinburgh and Glasgow. My exploration of Scotland has been embarrassingly um, low, but I think it's uh, because... It's a fascinating... The east coast of Scotland is fascinating. Um, for me, that was one of the joys of how I kind of 
got into a world of travel was I didn't have much money at university, but I used to do these little trips from Dundee up the East Coast to places like Montrose or the East Nuke of Fife, which is this string of uh, villages that the, the Dutch established. And you still see these Dutch-style fishermen's cottages brightly painted in Dutch colours, and it's, it looks so incongruous against the whole surrounding landscape. It looks so out of place, but it, it's so magical. And, and obviously, you've heard about Amsterdam, the home of uh, arguably the best fish and chips in Britain. Many <laughs> of your listeners might fiercely <laughs> debate that. But, um, but it, and St Andrews is a dream of a city. It's just 40 minutes from Dundee, and it's a different world altogether. So uh, I kind of I kind of loved exploring around Scotland, going to the Highlands. Highlands is on your doorstep from Dundee, so it's a great place to be. And uh, and yeah, and uh, it was a great. Uh, people were very kind and friendly. Um, I find that I, I I don't know. Sometimes I find people in Scotland a little bit more relaxed, a bit more more open, and and I felt more uh, welcomed there. Um, That's so. very interesting. More welcome than somewhere like Kent. Yeah, I, I felt like in, in, in Dundee I could be someone. That was the, the greatest strength and, and, and joy I took from my four university years in Dundee. Was It was a small town where I could build an identity, I could do something, I could be part of something. Dundee's not the richest city in Scotland. It's very impoverished in parts, but it's also a very entrepreneurial city that's growing, that's very educated and intelligent and I could sense even then that Dundee was peeling back its old layers and growing this new identity with this focus on gaming, biotech and I felt like I was part of that uh, being in the university and the university is at the heart of it along with Dundee University so it, for me it was uh, it gave me a lot of confidence and helped me kind of rebuild my confidence after a few brutal years in India. I can see how you've become this sort of independent traveling spirit from that sort of early experience and being uprooted, you know, from everything you knew into something that was vastly different. I was uprooted at the age of seven from the Wirral to Spain and it, it was different, but it wasn't as different as going to Calcutta. You know, nothing <laughs> is, is that different, you know, Kent to Calcutta at that age. I, I can't think of any two more different places, actually. Um, so you, you explained a little bit how you became the, the, you know, gave up your work and became the budget traveller. And I do want to speak about budget travel and maybe some tips, you know, particularly at this time, you know, have a little chat about what's going to happen to travel in terms of cost and, and more, actually. But just before we do that, um, you must have been to so many places. I mean, what a what a dream job, you know, you're, it, it's just a, a really dream job. And you made it happen yourself. But what, what really stands out to you? And I tell you what else we really like on this podcast. We really like anecdotes. We like stories. So if you've got any, like, um, really standout moments in different countries of people <laughs> that you've met or places you've been or experience you've had that's what I want to know it's a real privilege and an amazing gift to the gift of travel something I think I appreciate I think we all appreciate more in times like this and uh, I, I, I've lived and had an amazing life of going to so many places countries 
I can't tell you the number of countries I've visited. I'm not a counter of countries. That's uh, interesting. Some people count. Some people don't count. Some people pretend not to count. I've had Simon Calder on and he said, oh, I, I couldn't count. And then he think he said, yeah, 153 or something like that. <laughs> That's probably not the number. But, you know, he, he did. He kind of knew, you know, he did kind of know, but didn't want to show off. But I made him show up. <laughs> but you I haven't think, counted. I haven't counted uh, recently. I think I might have two years ago had an idea. But um, countries I've visited, um, I, I always, when people say my favorite places in the world I've visited, it's toss up between Japan and, and South Africa. Right. Um, Japan, for me, uh, probably is my favorite because uh, you become desensitized when you travel. You see the same things see patterns in travel and then you go somewhere like Japan which is uh, A, the time difference knocks you for the first few days you just you feel your body's not part of you and then you wake up at God earthly hours because you can't sleep and you, you find yourself 5am at a beautiful uh, temple right beside your Airbnb and just feels completely magical and surreal just like you imagine it would be like just like it is in the movies and it's this amazing air of peace and calm and how um, how Japanese people um, are so diligent and how they go about their life in such a beautiful way. It's it this, this patterns and designs you see in, in the way they walk, the way they, they, they present themselves. Uh, there's this, uh, yeah, this, this, this beautiful design of life. And, and uh, even though they don't speak a word of English, uh, the most kindest people I think I've ever met in my travels. Uh, I remember one guy was trying to go up. Um, I think it's the highest viewing point, the the tower. Uh, the name escapes me. It's it's an observation deck, and I couldn't, for the love of God, find it. And uh, uh, this guy was on his way to work. I tried to explain to him, and then after a while, he understood. And then he walked with me for must have been about twenty five minutes. <laughs> and I was I was like. You really don't have to come all the way, you know. You could just point at me on the map, and he's like, "No, no, no, I come with you." And he, he was like, he kept on walking, walking, and he walked me right to the door, and then he walked, and he said thank you, and then he walked off to work. And I was like, "Wow." <laughs> Um, so nice. I, I find it I, I find it excruciating enough when you ask someone for something in a supermarket and they take you three aisles, you know, and actually show you. I was like, no, just show me. Just tell me where it is. <laughs> but to come all the way, that's lovely. That's a really ex lovely example of uh, Japanese nature, I think. Amazing hospitality. And obviously the food, I travel through my stomach. And uh, I remember going to Tsukiji um, fish market. At, at, you have to go there at the crack of dawn. And sadly, I think the, the fish market is no longer. But for those of your listeners who have been there, you will remember going up early in the morning to see the, the tuna uh, being auctioned off and and uh, you the freshest and most delicious sushi I've ever tasted in my life was at 6 a.m. at Tsukiji Fish Market and uh, and uh, freshly prepared in front of your eyes with, uh, with the grace and elegance. Uh, that was one of the things that I always admire in Japanese about how they they put so much time and dedication into everything they do, especially when it comes to preparing food. It's like an art. It was a great trip because I was there also with Lonely Planet and uh, oh, and, nice. uh, really nice. and the BBC filming a, a series called Hidden Japan. So it, it was a life changing experience going to places like Kanazawa, which is uh, on the west coast of Japan, uh, which is the samurai where the samurai uh, samurai kingdom was and 
and I remember going to a samurai house and uh, I was being filmed there. And then the most surreal moment of my life when uh, Tommy Lee Jones walks in. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, suddenly Tommy Lee Jones walks in and he looks at the cameraman and then he's like, please, can you, can you, can you stop filming? And then the cameraman pointed towards me and he said, sorry, we're not filming you, we're filming him. <laughs> 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 and I was like, <laughs> I could not believe it. I was just like, and then he just grumbled and muttered something and just went right in. And um, that was a, a surreal experience meeting Tommy Lee Jones, uh, probably there to do a promotion of his, he's an ambassador, for, I think for a coffee called Boss, I think so. Oh, that's so funny. I love it. And also, well, actually, I didn't know he was an ambassador. Maybe lots of people know about his coffee ambassadorship. However, I do know when I've spent time in Asia, like big celebrities do adverts and sponsorships there that they don't do when they're in the Western world. So, like, you'll find, I don't know, John Bon Jovi selling a certain type of shoe or something in Thailand. And you think, oh, that's weird. I've never seen that advert in the UK or the States. You know, it's like they just wouldn't. But actually, when they're over somewhere else, they think they forget that, like, everything's sort of global these days <laughs> what gets around that's so funny that's so funny where else has been another standout moment like that in a different country a different country standard moments uh, wow um i would say south africa um i uh, uh, had the joy of visiting south africa three times and uh, uh one of my stand-up memories is uh, i we did a, a film with a friend of mine called simon lewis uh we did a road trip uh, across the garden route and uh, we started in reverse we started actually in western cape and uh, we made our way all the way to cape town we started at a place called sinsa at a place called the buccaneers it's a backpackers hostel uh, on the wild coast and it kind of cascades it's sit sitting on a hill and the the backpacker hostel kind of cascades in small units and private apartments and it goes all the way down to the beach and the beach is just this pristine white sand beach and you can hear this roar of w water uh, of sea slashing against this white sand beach and it's miles and miles of completely empty white sand beach and um, it's a it's a real beautiful place they they have their a close connection with the local Kosa community and they have a school they have a foundation which helps local kids get educated and you can go and stay at the hostel, you can volunteer and, and learn about the Kosa community. And that was, for me, a, a completely amazing experience. And we started there and moved our way all the way up the coast through places like Nizna. I went paragliding for the first time in my life. I How was that? Was it was amazing? incredible. Paragliding is like the closest thing to, I think, flying. I did skydiving once in Costa Brava, which was also an incredible experience. Uh, but but paragliding is very calm. You can when you're when you're paragliding, I was terrified because I'm absolutely terrified of heights. <laughs> it's a great start. <laughs> but you you know that's the beauty of travel. It always pushes you out of your comfort zone, especially with the job that I do. Is that you're always ch challenging yourself to try something new. And, uh, and I think that's what makes it fun to follow. And uh, so uh, we, we did this, this, this jump, this paragliding, and, and the lagoon is beautiful, and, and, it, and it faces onto the sea, the lagoon, and it's just amazing. You're just flying almost between the trees, and the sound is so silent when you're, when you're paragliding. 
and then you, you land later and you're full of adrenaline and then you go and have a plate of oysters for about 12 euros in the and delicious oysters so it's uh, one of the cheapest places also to paraglide in the world i believe nice now that sounds amazing were you paragliding with someone else i'm assuming i was yes i was i was i was i was with a, a, a person uh, local there i was staying at a place called Af, uh, afro vibe backpackers lodge right on the beach in sedgefield and after that they, uh, there's a rastafarian community and they uh, organized a tour to the local Rastafarian community where we where we learned about their culture and their they have their own you know unique one way of living and very warm welcoming people and and very musical people there's a whole video it's called uh, backpacking along the garden route if anybody is interested you can find it on youtube that sounds amazing and i really want to go i haven't been to south africa which is such an oversight in my travel experience but i've said it before on the podcast and she'll kill me for mentioning it again but i blame <laughs> my friend fran who was going to get married there every day since every year since i met her she's like oh we'll be getting married in cape town next year and then after 18 years together they split up so selfishly uh-huh. i never got i was like oh i'm not going to cape town because i'm going I'm going there next year. I'm going there next year. And that went on for years and years. So Fran, I'm having a go at you again. If anyone wants to marry my friend Fran <laughs> so I can go to a wedding in uh, in South Africa, then then please do. Otherwise, I'll just have to go anyway. You should go because uh, South Africa needs all the support it needs at the moment. It's it's going through a tough time at the moment. It was going through a tough time before, wasn't it? And um, yeah. and now it's uh, it's obviously, well, the, wor- the whole world is going through a tougher time. So yeah. that's not going to make things any better, unfortunately. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about that let's talk a bit about budget travel for a start i'm so ashamed to say that i've never don't think i've ever stayed in a hostel oh i know i'm so sorry oh. when i no, was no, don't be don't be don't be it's, it's an exciting thing i always get excited when people tell me they haven't stayed in hostels i i'm i'm like a preacher i, I see a new person i can convert and <laughs> I, can, I i always take great uh, great pleasure in 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 sharing my copy of my book, the the Grand Hostels, the Luxury Hostel of the World. That's uh, the book I wrote about this whole new grown up world of hosteling, and uh, people always look at the pictures and say, "Is that a hostel, really?" And people are always amazed how much the world of hostling has changed. I, well, I, I love it. It's, uh, you, you, I'd love to go anywhere and stay in anything right now, actually. Frankly, I'd sleep on a park bench if it got me <laughs> to another. And, and so it's going to say another country, but even, I was gonna, even another town. In fact, here in the borough of Greenwich, if it got me out of the borough, I'd be up for that right now. But no, I, I did have a look at your book and the um, some of the places in there are just incredible. They really are. Actually, on, on that subject, where is the most incredible hostel you've ever stayed in? Oh, well, I'll tell you... Um, one of my favorite hostels is in a place uh, in Finnish Lapland. It's called the Seven Fells Hostel. And I went there in the summer, uh, just before August. They have this beautiful phenomenon, which you might, have, might know, the, the midnight sun, mm-hmm. where you had, when, the, when the region experienced 20, almost 24 hours daylight. And I went there to, to film the hostel as part of my, my project, my, my luxury hostels project. And uh, Tinya, the lady who runs it, it's a small hostel. It's, it's right in the woods, right in its nature. And I remember at 11.30, taking our bikes out at night, they have this beautiful uh, lake called Akasampolo. And uh, cycling around the lake, they these cloudberries, uh, that's the time to pick these cloudberries right at midnight. So you're, you're eating berries at midnight, and then mm-hmm. you come back to the hostel, uh, jump into the sauna, um, refresh yourself, and then 
sit down to roast some sausages over the fire uh, till 3 a.m. Uh, while drinking a, uh, a very expensive <laughs> non-alcoholic glass of wine. It's, oh, it's damn. A running, it's a running joke between me and Tinia that we, 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 it's a bit expensive alcohol in, in Finland, but other than that, everything is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds incredible. That really sounds, I mean, maybe you'll convert me to hostels, but um, a lot of my travel has been on my uh, own uh, back for holidays. But also when I was doing a lot of press trips, I had this contract with Sky, tvpeoplesky.com, where I'd make travel films for them from all over the world and I could go on any press trip. But I was specializing in luxury travel. So, I mean, I'm not a natural luxury traveler from my background, a very lower middle class, you know, family on the Wirral with a dad from Fiji that didn't have shoes until he was 10 or later in fact but um you know I've been very lucky to do a lot of luxury travel as well but I think from what you've said is that hosteling doesn't have to like mean sleeping in you know some rough joint with 20 smelly men (laughs) you can find in some of these hostels I'll give you an example there's one in Copenhagen called the Steel House it's a beautiful design hostel it has a swimming pool in the basement it has the most luxurious biggest kitchen you could ever imagine it has a cinema inside. It has uh, private suites with with their own balcony in the center in the heart of Copenhagen. They have a wonderful lounge area uh, where you can chill and, and meet other people and some of the cheapest beer also in town. And there are also dorms, but these are like cubicle pod style dorms that you find in Japan, which are have their own privacy curtains. So you have your own space. So it's it, it's different. It's 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 not like the hostels we used to go to before. The, I think the whole it's all about experiences. That's what I when people say what is a luxury hostel? Are you saying luxury in the sense of like traditional luxury? And I say that luxury nowadays for us as travelers is experiences, and mm-hmm. all of these hostels offer a great experience of the city, and it's an opportunity to meet people. And I think that's the what we all look for when we travel is we we don't want to be stuck in our rooms. We want to meet people and want to learn about the culture of the place. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And what a lovely way to meet like-minded people as well. So how do we, how do we, I mean, this is such a big question. It's a question I'm asked on the radio frequently here, pretty much every day at the moment. What do we think is going to change for travel? What do we think is going to change? I mean, at the moment, uh, a few countries are opening. You're in Berlin right now. I know you, yeah. um, you, your lockdown has been eased somewhat. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, let's, let's do two questions there to unpack. What do we think is going to be the, the future for travel? And also, um, I want to know before you go what it's like right now in Berlin. Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you what the future of travel will look like. But I think I'd be kidding all of you guys to, to say that I know what it will look like. I think for sure one thing is that it's going to be, it's not going to be as cheap as possible as, as before. I think we, we, we've, we witnessed a golden era in aviation with flights with Ryanair and EasyJet. And I think that will be difficult. But I still think uh, it will be very accessible. I still think there will be train travel I can see making a huge, was already already on the rise. I think people are becoming more conscious of their impact on the environment. So I can see uh, more train travel. I think people will travel more locally within Europe. I can see that's the first one or two years. I think international travel will be very difficult and complicated and expensive. But at the same place, I don't know, you know, what hostels will be still standing, which airlines will still be standing. So it's very difficult to predict uh, looking into the future. 
that I like to think that we will be more grateful and more conscious and more will will support the businesses in tourism that really need our money and not put them into soulless, bland chain hotels. Um, I think uh, we'll see a shift. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of think that too. But like you said, nobody said so. So nobody knows. Tell me about Berlin. Well, I, do you know what? I love Berlin. I, I've had some of my craziest nights out ever in Berlin. One of them <laughs> ended up in the Kit Kat Club. I don't know if you know the Kit Kat Club. Is yes, that still I, going? I went to the Kit Kat Club, the, the infamous Kit Kat Club, which uh, sadly is facing threat of closure at the moment. So. I can imagine. I can imagine. Oh my goodness! It was a sweat pit of den of iniquity with people yeah. covered in leather and all sorts of I mean it was great fun for a night out when I say a night out I think I got there about six o'clock in the morning I was I'd been in the uh, out and we ended up in the meter area which is just lovely like full of fantastic bars and and you know it's six o'clock in the morning you're like where can we go now and we asked some guy and he said go to the Kit Kat club I was like all right then and so we got into a taxi and then the taxi was like taking us further and further out of town we're thinking oh hang on this is a bit weird have we what have we done what have we done <laughs> pulls up at this warehouse place and there's a big velvet curtain as I recall yes. and the guy behind the counter said oh you can leave your clothes in there and we thought that was a language thing because you know we left our coats in, in the cloakroom and uh, when we got in we realized it wasn't a language thing he obviously knew perfectly you can actually leave your clothes in there because everyone is uh, either semi-dressed or, or in leather there was a guy in a gimp suit uh, there was there was things that I will not mention going on on this podcast because they are far <laughs> too filthy for public consumption but it was a very very memorable night out I think I think that you summed up the beauty of Berlin is that I came to Berlin three years ago when I was not in a the best place I'd come out of a long-term relationship I was a bit um, I just won the, this award with National uh, Geographic Traveler, and you know when you've peaked this this high in your life, you 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 then ask yourself what's next. And I kind of had a bit of burnout. I pushed myself too hard, thinking this was my time to cash in and this was the time to really build the block to the next level. And then I realized I had I completely fell out of love with travel and. I moved to Berlin um, and I met Sabrina, my other half, and um, I, I decided to take a, a time off work and, and, and just just enjoy life and, and Berlin summer. And Berlin summer is a thing that everybody in life should experience. It's uh, this magical time when everybody is out in Berlin. And it, Berlin, Berlin is not a, an expensive city. It's very accessible, as you might remember. You can... People don't go to bars, they go and grab a beer from a Shpeti, which is these corner kiosks where you can buy a beer for a euro, euro fifty. And you go to a park and you sit and chill with your friends and talk about life and enjoy the sunshine. And then after that, you you, you trumble off home, uh, uh, cook yourself some dinner, hang out with friends. And then you go out at two o'clock, three o'clock in the, in, the, in the night and you go clubbing for the whole weekend. And uh, and uh, and. Uh, People are very accepting here. They're non-judgmental, and Berlin accepts people from all all races and backgrounds and sexuality. and And at the age of forty, that was uh, for me a huge uh, shock to my system. As somebody who who's also uh, grew up in Eng England and in India, to uh, in a conservative family, um, it, for me, it, it just it, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for that shock and. It, it it just blew my mind apart, and and uh, and that's what I love about Berlin is that it, you're always constantly discovering new things, places. The nightlife is obviously uh, one of the main attractions of coming here, 
but I, I also love the people and I love how it is such a creative city of different people and especially now post-Brexit so many Brits have moved over to Berlin so Berlin is a mixture of it's funny hearing the Scots uh, accents on in Neukölln there's this bar called Das Gift which is run by uh, one half of the, the band Maguire and uh, you can hear all these Scots in kilts uh, uh, at 6 a.m. Uh, singing Scottish songs and eating Scottish breakfast in, in the heart of Berlin and then you've got a Turkish a restaurant next door where everybody's eating uh, manti and delicious food. So you've got this melting pot of cultures and uh, I love it. It's, well, I didn't know that about Mogwai. That's, I didn't know that. That's so really yeah. interesting. I know that I know the bands quite well. I don't know the bands. Like you probably know the bands. I, I know of them. I know their music. And I love that, the fact that at age 40, you can, you know, you traveled the world and that's just the beauty about travel, isn't it? That it still has the, um, the element of surprise. Something can still surprise you and delight you wherever you go. And I think the music thing brings me very nicely onto my last question, because my last question is always about music. And I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel. If you can choose one song, what is that song and Ooh. where were you? What do you remember? I'll pick uh, Morchiba. Uh, I think the song is called By the Sea. Yes, it is. And um, I was, 2001, it was my first trip to Italy. And we, I was then with my then ex-wife and one of my best friends from, from Scotland. Hang on, she was, she was then your ex-wife? She was then my ex-wife. Yeah, yes. okay, got you. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 were, we had little money in our pocket. We had bought flights with Ryanair to Pisa Airport from, from Glasgow Presswick for about 10 pence return. We stayed in hostels. We ate one meal a day, but we were the happiest uh, we'd ever been probably in our marriage. And we, we landed in this place called Chataldo, uh, which has this backpacker hostel called Fattoria Baseto, which still exists. And it's halfway between Siena and and uh, Florence. And uh, we arrived in this small town. Uh, and the beauty of Italian small towns is they all look so beautiful. And he had this old Citta Alta, this old town in the, in the top. And he picked us up in his pickup bus to take us to the hostel. And this hostel is the kind of place you go there for two days and you end up spending two weeks because it's so comfortable. And you can see San Gimgiano, this medieval Manhattan all these ancient towers in the distance. And it's this picture book, Tuscan uh, image that you always have in your mind when you think about Tuscany. And we were in a hostel paying 12 euros a night in a, uh, in a 14th century monastery building. And he, he, he took us into his ramshackle bus and he put on by the sea. And ah, every time I, hit that, I hear that song, it just takes me back to that hostel and all the people I met. It was one of my first hostel experiences. And it opened me to a world of travel and and uh, uh, it was like a discovering a drug and and never wanting to let go of it. And uh, yeah, I, I love that song. Cash, thank you so much for coming on. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. And, you know, it really, and I hope the listeners are finding this at the moment, that in, even in lockdown, you know, we're dreaming about travel more than Absolutely. ever, more than ever. Is it one, one more thing I could quickly add? Just a little shout out uh, for, for those of you who love hostels and love the, independent spirit of of travel uh, i just launched uh, because my blog is 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 shut to a halt and and i've been busy trying to put together a, a campaign to support the hostel industry and uh, it's called adoptahostel.com it's a voucher platform 
where people can buy vouchers to support over 200 hostels from all over the world. And uh, some of my favorite hostels in the world are in it, including the Seven Fells, which I mentioned. Uh, so if anybody's interested in, in uh, hostels and, and supporting the hostel industry, this would mean the world to all the hostels involved and to me. Have a look at it, www.adopterhostel.com. Brilliant. Um, and I will definitely have a look at it. And I feel like you've converted me to hostels and I hope <laughs> to meet you in person one day where we'll be sharing a cheap beer in some fabulous hostel somewhere. Sounds Maybe great. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Remember, you can follow us wherever you can on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand and you're listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.